The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm John Emmons, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 11th, 2023. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS, has been the subject of public discussion recently due to its role in responding to national security concerns regarding TikTok's operations in the United States, as well as concerns from some scholars that CFIUS's oversight may have costs on the pace of innovation and research within the United States. For today's archive episode, I chose an episode from June 2018 in which the Center for Strategic and International Studies hosted a panel to discuss a bipartisan proposal in Congress that sought to expand the committee's powers. The bipartisan proposal, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act of 2018, was signed into law by then-President Trump in August of 2018. I'm Matthew Kahn, and you're listening to the Lawfare Podcast, June 2nd, 2018. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States typically referred to by its abbreviation CFIUS, plays an essential role in advising the president on how to exercise his or her authority to block foreign investments that might let the U.S.'s adversaries acquire sensitive American technology or intellectual property. A bipartisan proposal in Congress aims to expand CFIUS's powers. On Thursday, the Center for Strategic and International Studies convened a panel of Dov Zakheim, a former Pentagon official, Ivan Schlager, a partner in Skadden Arps National Security Practice, Nova Daly, a senior public policy advisor at the law firm Wiley Rhine, and CSIS Vice President James Andrew Lewis to talk about CFIUS and how it might change under the new law. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 317, The Future of CFIUS. I thought what we'd do, starting with Ivan, is begin by just getting them to give their impressions of where we are now with the bill, uh, now that it's gone through markup, um, what might need to be done um, in the future, what they think. So Ivan, if you wanna, if you wanna start. Well, Jim, thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here again. Pleasure to be with such an esteemed panel. Um, so when I think about the bill, I think I wanna paraphrase Barack Obama's line from uh, the debate with Mitt Romney, the 1980s called, and they want their trade policy back. Because uh, if, you, if you look at the, but having been involved in Exxon Florio, I guess present from the creation, 
think the bill addresses some of the same issues that we were focused on back in the late 80s as far as protecting the defense industrial base, critical technologies, and you know, um, addressing issues related to minority investments that could potentially involve some technology transfer. Uh, I think where we're at today is a decent compromise. Um, the outbound investment piece and the joint venture piece is something that I'll focus on today because while it's taken out of the CFIUS process, I think a process that enables DOD to weigh in heavily on critical technologies with Commerce and, and BIS will be interesting and I think uncharted territory for people who are structuring joint ventures. Um, and then I'll end with this last piece, which is we've been struggling since uh, the passage of PNTR for you know, how do we develop a mutually beneficial business relationship with China? And I think FIRMA is a, an expression of the frustration that people feel, both inbound <coughs> and outbound, whether or not you have access to China. Some of the things that we're looking at in the 301 case, which are dovetailing, I think, with the investment policy uh, today. So I think that is a work in progress over you know, how we're going to treat a system that operates under you know, fairly, a fairly different set of rules from uh, our type of capitalism. So I'll hand it off to the real expert. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, um, <laughs> you're the expert. <laughs> no, I haven't seen I haven't a lot of on the ground uh, <laughs> cases. And so um, anyway, uh, Jim, thank you for having me here. Thanks for all your great work. Uh, uh, Jim has done incredible stuff on the policy side, cyber and national security, and thanks CSIS for having me here. Um, so I sort of framed my remarks in terms of does the bill matter, and I think it definitely does from the broader picture, right? I think, the, I think the broader picture issue is we have a serious issue before us, and that is what is the relationship uh, economically, strategically, politically, diplomatically with China? And I think the gro this bill emanated from addressing that issue in terms of the narrow slice of the investment side. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's an issue uh, that's important. Uh, it's important for both countries to get it right. Uh, when I was running CFIUS uh, and I met with my Chinese counterparts, they always said, okay, what, what's, what can't we do? All right, just spell out the rules for us, make it clearer. And I think this bill helps to make uh, some things clear and some things a little bit more ambiguous, but I think it broadly helps address uh, some clarity in terms of uh, investment uh, and some of the national security issues that arise from it. So that's the broad picture. So I think it's definitely a significant bill that is going to pass. Now in terms of the specific provisions I think that are going to make a big difference in the way CFIUS sort of operates, I think the three big issues uh, uh, is what is considered a covered investment. Uh, it creates, uh, it lowers the threshold for passivity. Um, it also uh, requires real estate investments uh, to be filed as well. Um, and uh, incremental control, which was something we hadn't, and people don't really see as much uh, or recognize as a big issue. But you know, if you have a company that buys 20% and that's a CFIUS review, well, that gets reviewed. But then if that company acquires another 30% or 40%, that wasn't something that 
CFIUS could review, and it had one bite at the apple to really address that initial control. Now it has a couple bites, which could be burdensome to the process. We'll see how they deal with it. Um, the other, uh, I think the biggest one is the mandatory declarations. Uh, CFIUS uh, is ostensibly a voluntary process and always has been, but it is now going to evolve into a different process. It's mandatory for certain uh, investments uh, by government controlled entities. Uh, determining on the passivity threshold or 10%, and then uh, also uh, under what CFIUS determines under regulations uh, in other critical technologies. That's going to be very interesting to see what CFIUS defines and puts in that category of mandatory declarations. Uh, the last one is what Ivan alluded to, sort of the focus on uh, export controls and critical technology and uh, new evolving uh, technology. I think. Uh, f finally having a focus on that, deciding what is a foundational technology, uh, addressing some of the issues that were the underlying problems that were in the DIUX report, if you're familiar with that, uh, will be a, something that will have a spotlight now and have a process uh, for addressing. And then quickly, other notable changes in the bill that I think uh, are important to keep note of. Filing fees, it's good. <laughs> I don't know, well, you know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but definitely <coughs> CFIUS uh, needs funding, but whether that should emanate from the public source or uh, the filing fees is something I think worth debate. Information sharing with allies, I think it's an important issue too. We saw that in a number of cases where it's a cross-border uh, investment. It's a global world, and dealing with national security issues with our allies is important. Uh, review timing, 30 days to 45, is interesting given the, the DNI. Uh, uh, 30, uh, 30 days instead of 20 helps them figure out what is a salient threat. Uh, mitigation authority is an important one. Judicial review is interesting. Deal monitoring, non-filed, was always a problem. Uh, I always thought that could be an explosive issue for CFIUS. Giving it hiring authority and then uh, conditioning sort of its review of notices and making sure it had a locked-in timetable. Anyway, I'll turn to Great, Mr. Thanks, well, thanks very much. Uh, thanks, Jim. Pleasure to be with my colleagues. Um, Nova's given you a pretty detailed review of what's in there, so let me give you some larger implications. The first one is my old department is increasing its uh, budgeting for CFIUS-related activities from 3.2 million in fiscal 18 to 23-odd million in fiscal 19, a 700% increase. What does that mean? It means that DOD is going to be the elephant in the room. And that whether the law, as it looks like it's going to do, uh, deals, uh, gives to commerce, essentially, control so-called over how you deal with technology transfer outbound as opposed to inbound, it ain't going to matter much if DOD has so much clout. DOD will still be saying, we're opposed to this, we're opposed to that, we're opposed to the other. And DOD, in many ways, is the most sensitive to what technologies can affect the national security. Remember, there are a lot of technologies that we may not fully appreciate because there's this massive thing called the black program. And what's the black program? It's stuff that DOD doesn't talk about. And a lot of times off the shelf. Customized. And so I can't even talk about that. And so <laughs> the point is DOD will have outsized influence <clears throat> and outsized resources relative to everybody else. Everybody else, commerce is increasing too by 600,000 or something. And look at the difference. So that's point number one. 
Point number two is this isn't a law about China. It's a law driven by China. So if you're France, if you're Germany, that's going to affect you too. Now, given that you have a lot of government investment outside China in various technologies, what does that do? How is that looked at? What about relationships that third countries have with China? And how does that play in? And then how do you define influence? You know, up to now, pretty much, the, it, the issue has been, you know, you have foci, foreign uh, control and influence. The, the focus has been on the C, on the control. All of a sudden, it's now officially on the influence, or it will be officially on the influence. What percentage is influence? Is it 10%? Is it 5%? Is it 2%? And who determines that? That's not going to be the law. That's going to be the executive branch determining what influence is. And who's going to have a major hand in that? DOD again. Defense Security Service, for example. So the law has a very, very broad bandwidth that I think people don't fully yet appreciate. Now, there's one other thing. Uh, nobody's mentioned the hedge funds yet, but you had that in your, in your title of this thing. Hedge funds invest alongside uh, national governments, right? All of a sudden, they're not going to be able to do that. Or if they do that, they're going to run the risk that the investment's going to go south. What do you do when you're not able to as easily work with sovereign funds as you used to be able to? What do you do when you're working, when you basically have to reveal which individuals you're working with? Some Russian oligarch, for example. So that's going to put a real damper, I think, on how hedge funds invest, invest and how people invest in hedge funds. And then one final consideration. Um, I don't know that our president ever took Economics 101. Um, but you know, there isn't, it, it isn't just the current account. It's the capital account. And the capital account offsets the current account. So if you've got this huge current account deficit with China, that means that there's a lot of capital coming in from China. Do you want to dry it all up? I'm not saying we shouldn't have controls. I'm not saying the controls shouldn't be tighter. My world, the defense world, wants tighter controls. But I also don't want a drying up of foreign investment, say, in Silicon Valley. So you need a degree of sophistication that, well, maybe the government's got it, maybe the government doesn't have it. And I think if we're going to go down this path as we're likely to, we better make sure that our government officials really know what they're talking about. Mm, yeah, I have been thinking about that because when you talk about sensitive technologies, then trying to define them. That's going to be a real challenge. Let me switch. I was in China a couple weeks ago and was talking to them about market Leninism. And uh, I was surprised to find out this phrase is now 25 years old. So in some ways, the iceberg has been approaching for a while. The other thing that I detected uh, was that if the emphasis in the past was maybe on market, the emphasis now might be on Leninism in China. 
So a couple of the, this bill is driven to a large extent right. by China. So let me ask a couple questions about that. First, we were talking a little bit beforehand. How do you decide when something is government controlled? I mean, it's easy when it's, you know, Norway's state Do we say we know it when we see it now? Well, <laughs> we could stop but, there, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would put it in a couple categories, and I think Dove raised mm -hmm. an interesting point, particularly as it relates to sovereign wealth funds and government-controlled entities. You know, I mean, if you look at the Gulf states, Mubadla and Adia, and if you look at Singapore with Tomasic and GIC, or Norway was mentioned earlier, or my favorite, which are the Canadians who are probably LPs in every major private equity firm. You know, not all government ownership. And step back, remember the government ownership provision was written, and Dove will remember this, because of European state-owned entities acquiring U.S. defense assets and the view was they had an advantage in a competitive situation because they were backed by a treasury. I think, shift forward, it's more nuanced now because of the rise of the sovereign wealth funds, their role as limited partners and a number of other investments. Set that aside, and then China. Look, you, I've never truly been able to figure out where the government starts and stops and where private, I mean, it's such a connected web that you know, we operate under the assumption that any Chinese entity is not truly private because of the system that, that they're involved in. So particularly in China, I think the government has an ability to influence private economic activity in a way that we don't see in other countries. Let me give you a concrete example. Um, this is actually what happened. Um, I'm aware of a major contractor if I named that contractor, you would be aware of it. That was awarded a prize, actually a major sub, they were awarded a prize for uh, what they produced by the prime. Turns out that the subcontractor's supplier was a private Chinese company. 51% of the private Chinese company was owned by another private Chinese company. But 51% of that was owned by the Chinese Air Force. It's easy if you're dealing with a sovereign wealth fund. What do you do about this kind of case? How do you then define, how far back do you go? Now DOD will say go all the way back. Although DOD didn't catch that one. The reason they found out about it is because I let them know when I was out of government. How far back do you go? So defining foreign control, and certainly foreign influence, is not straightforward, as, as Ivan says. In fact, it's awfully complicated, and particularly uh, when you're dealing with a China, but not just with a China, because that's what governments are gonna start to do. If they see that you're going after sovereign wealth investments, They'll just start by, you know, creating dummy companies and they'll be doing like the folks do who put their money in Panama. It'll be the same kind of idea. Yeah, Again, I, it calls for a degree of sophistication that I just well, hope the government has. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I agree the, the degree of sophistication is a little difficult in terms of the nuance, definitely with the complexity of investments and where sovereign wealth funds come from. But I think you have to... 
I sort of take a step back and say, well, what is the governing principle by which you want to operate on? And I think one of the governing principles of this country is that you want to have a limited government involved in the market. You want private actors to compete on a level playing field. Uh, of course, can deal, you know, dealing with antitrust and other issues where government should step in, but a more limited government. So under that precept, why would you allow foreign government entities to have competitive entities to operate in your market without having checks and balances to that? So while it's going to be a conundrum and what's, where does government control or influence start and where does private entity end is going to be something that's going to be nuanced for each transaction and each entity involved in the review of that transaction. I think the broader principle of ensuring a limited government influence in the competitive nature of uh, industry, allowing for uh, uh, the dynamic crash of industries, uh, bankruptcies, but also the innovation that comes from it, that's what you want to sponsor. And I just think uh, this bill will certainly engender uh, a big questioning of where, where, the, where the water starts and the, the shore ends in terms of that. But it gets trickier because, look, Silicon Valley, it used to be that DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, basically was the cutting edge of all technology. And they gave us GPS and the internet and all kinds of other good stuff. That's not the case anymore. The cutting edge is out in California or up in Massachusetts or down in the Research Triangle in North Carolina. And not only that, they don't need DOD. So, but Their markets are huge. Look, I, I think one thing that we haven't focused on that's critical, and particularly as we're talking about China and the competition with China, both as a strategic and economic competitor, is remember that Exxon Floria was part of an Omnibus Trade and Competitiveness Act, mm -hmm. an act that included the creation of Semitech, an act that gave the president tools to open markets. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's good that we're focused on FIRMA, but FIRMA can't be taken in isolation. It has to be part of a broader competitiveness yeah. strategy. And I think that's probably the missing component right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, to your point about DOD expanding the budget, everything is so siloed that if we're looking at critical technologies and we're looking at foreign investment and even some Chinese investment, which may be net positive from on a lower end, lower scale technology, enable people to shift costs so they can focus on higher end technology here in the US, those are all benefits. But it needs to be tied to a comprehensive strategy that includes investing in creating PhDs and investing in R&D and identifying critical there's so much conversation about China 2025, but where is the U.S. national strategy? And I think that's been the big shift. I mean, Exxon Floria was something tucked into a larger strategic vision of how we were going to compete with, at the time, a rising Japanese economic threat. And what's interesting now is that it looks like firm is going to pass as part of NDAA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Look, I, 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 I don't disagree with that. In fact, my whole point is, Given that, that the commercial world is ahead of us in defense, right. we've got to think about how to make, make sure it stays ahead of everybody else. And there's one other thing that I think underlies a lot of this law and a lot of the way the Hill thinks and DOD. There is always the assumption that we're the ones that are ahead in old technologies. Yes. And it ain't so. It just ain't so. And so one concern that I haven't seen too many people talk about is 
Suppose the Chinese start moving all their money into Europe to, to, to develop European technologies, which will then maybe outpace ours. Well, but I think that's another improvement in the legislation exists, and Nova was on the inside when this started to happen, which is this cooperation with our allies on you know, multiple cross-border transactions. We're making, we have a nice practice now in French national security reviews, you know, which uh, oftentimes uh, coincide with the CFIUS review. And Jim, you'll, uh, this is an, an area that I think is gonna be an increasing focus. It reminds me, I'm now one of these old guys. It reminds me of the COCOM era, you know, where we had so the export control regime was stood up so we didn't transfer technology to the Soviets. We weren't really an economic competitor, but were a strategic competitor. So now the question in my mind is, are our European allies, and I think on technology you also have to really focus on Israel, where some of the biggest technolo technological breakthroughs in- With a lot of Chinese investment. Right. How are we all going to cooperate, and are we developing a regime that either tries to isolate or check Chinese um, advances in technology? Yeah. In some ways, that's the core of the problem, because we're trying to layer a national regulatory regime on top of a global innovation yeah. environment. And, and we've got another problem. Just as a footnote, let me add, the, a group of 16 um, European think tanks did, just put out a report a month ago on Chinese investment in Europe and in startups. Uh, it's over 100 pages long, so it's worth looking at to see the scope. Still doesn't rival how much they're spending in the US, but the Chinese have clearly figured out, let's go where the brains are, and some of them are in Europe. Well, there's one other thing, too. You cannot divorce any of this from the big trade war that's looming between us and the EU. Do you honestly expect the Europeans, the Germans and the French in particular, to go out of their way to cooperate with us on what we demand in terms of technology control and dealing with China, when at the same time, we're gonna start throwing tariffs at them and all kinds of other barriers. So, you know, you would think, what does all of this have to do with Iran? And my answer is, guess what, it does. My, my rule of thumb is one trade war at a time, but you're, you're frightening me. I was going to ask about though, I mean, we, so there is cooperation on foreign investment, but it's done largely among the five eyes now. Yeah, right. yeah. And so we're talking about perhaps expanding the it. five eyes in France. And France. To, yes. Um, what does expansion Japan. look like? I mean, what does it look like in the context of going after your allies at the same time you want them to work with you on China? Yeah, I mean, I, I, in that aspect, I mean, <clears throat> there have been recent investments where it was Germany, you know, that we had to do some um, engagement Two with, uh, where we saw certain things happening in investments in Germany and uh, relayed that to them, and then they were able to take action. We were able to take action on this side of the pond. So I think it's a, it's a you know, given the globalized nature of, mm -hmm. of uh, business and technology and innovation, and the hubs are happening everywhere, as, as Dove mentioned, and so we don't want this bill to isolate the U.S. from that flow. Um, I just think the cooperation with our allies, uh, especially the provisions that uh, let allies opt out allies for certain, uh, for certain covered transactions, give a, give a new platform uh, for, for greater engagement. So while some of this bill, uh, could have a stifling effect, it also has a broadening effect by allowing us to operate outside of the five eyes 
and coordinate where the technology is going and where the national securities are shared between allies. But one thing that does trouble me about the recent trend, about the legislation and also the trend in the review process currently is what are we really trying to mitigate for and are we now living in what I'll call the 1% solution era where there's zero tolerance for any risk when in fact some foreign investment actually creates counter opportunities for the US that we ought to, you know, we ought to be able to balance. And I think that's, you don't want to build a regime that keeps capital, that prevents capital from flowing into the US and which also, what are we really guarding against? We're guarding against some high tech transfer are we guarding against putting people within certain entities? You know, do you need CFIUS for that when we have other provisions of law um, to protect against that? So I think that's one of the challenges that we're facing is there's this almost presumption now that all foreign investment from certain sectors or anybody who's got a relationship with China, therefore you, we don't want them investing in the U.S. And I think that, that could end up backfiring on, on us from a security perspective. And we need to be more nimble about what the ramifications are for just completely isolating capital from certain sectors. There's something else too, use the word mitigate. And, and you know, at the end of the day, it's DSS that works out mitigation agreements. And CFIUS. And CFIUS. And Team Telecom. Yeah. And how those mitigation agreements are going to be framed in light of the new law, I think they're going to be tougher than ever. Not necessarily because they should be, but because government is totally risk averse. But they should be, here's where I, I think some mitigation agreements have done very well and some fall short of the mark because some are really what I'll call a boon to the accounting firms. Right? We've got mitigation agreements with third-party audits where everything is set up for the audit. And I think the agreements that work well are the agreements where you put governance provisions in, where you can get some counterintelligence brief to you know, a security director, a security monitor, so that you're actually dealing with real threats rather than perceived threats. And so that you're not spending time, effort, and resources just to make sure you hit your audit but you're actually focused on what are real national security threats and how, and I can give you an example of a company that completely changed their insider threat profile because of the presence of two security directors with a deep background in counterintelligence. So those, I, I think that's beneficial more than, you know, was the visitation policy complied with. This is such a rich conversation. I keep writing down questions I should ask, and then when they talk, I have to write down five more. <laughs> so we will give you a chance to ask questions, but let me ask two. The first one is, um, are we uh, overloading the canoe with CFIUS? Are we trying to use this process to fix problems with export controls, with counterintelligence? We have a big challenge, and this has become a vehicle, or at least for a while it was a vehicle, to try and address those problems. Are we trying to get CFIUS to do too much, uh, the committee? <laughs> well, yeah, I, th I think it, uh, I think in some ways yes and in some ways no. I mean, one of the uh, very interesting things uh, being part of the CFIUS process where, was that policy issues that arose, cybersecurity, uh, chain of production uh, controls, 
I mean, those were things CFIUS, things CFIUS identified acutely initially and became broader policy issues that the White House took on in terms of what should be the U.S. policy on it. So while CFIUS has sort of been broadened in terms of its mandate, uh, still, you know, the IP provisions are now back with commerce, although DOD is going to have a, a fairly sizable role, but at least it's a process. So I think it will help identify uh, acute issues that can that need broader policy, U.S. policy, uh, to be addressed on a broader U.S. policy uh, mandate. The one thing I do want to enter before I forget it is that let's not forget, CFIUS still must, and the CFIUS agencies must still operate on a consensus basis. Huh. I know, I know you say hop, but, <laughs> but. 11 agencies operating under consensus, what could possibly go Okay, wrong? I know you don't like it because of the delays in the process, <laughs> but nonetheless, that means you need the economic agencies to really show their fire and making sure that open investment policy remains a dominant position of where the U.S. stands in, in terms of its economy. So, you know, you want the, uh, 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 Commerce Department, you want USTR, you want uh, uh, OSTP, you want others who hold sort of that economic principles to continue to fight for a balanced approach to these national security issues, including with mitigation. Anyway, that said. When, when I used to write this stuff, one of my goals was to build in as much discretion for the agency as possible. Do you think too much in this case? Not enough? I mean, I like discretion. Well, I mean, it's. I, because I tell you can do you, what you want. One thing that we've been saying to clients <clears throat> recently yeah. is, well, what's the environment like? And challenging and unpredictable. You know, I think that we used to be able to predict, okay, you structure an investment this way, it's covered, it's not covered. You're going to end up with this type of mitigation. I think right now, there's so much pressure and focus coming from the Hill on to the administration, and the administration is still figuring its way out, that it becomes less a, a less predictable environment. And I mean, I can think of investments that were structured where we filed to get a determination whether or not they were covered and they weren't covered. And then investments that today, you know, under that same structure would be considered covered. So it's very difficult right now to get a you know, complete, so because of the amount of discretion. Yeah, and the other thing is that while the, I think the career administration I think you accurately reflect their view. The political administration is actually much more aligned with the Hill. In other words, it wants to choke China every way it can. Mm. And in the course of doing that, as I said earlier, it chokes off investments critically needed in order to maintain the position we've got in the world. I mean, in a sense, one of the reasons that we can keep staying ahead of most people technologically it's because we've got the money to invest. If we don't have that level of funding, will we still be able to come up with the technologies that have kept us so far in front? I don't know. It's an open question. But that's, and that's, this is the DUIX report, uh, DIUX right. report. There's, and just having talked to a, a bunch of startups in Silicon Valley, there are Chinese investors basically roaming the valley yeah. who can write checks the same day. If you go to DOD, they'll say, come back in six months. Is that something we ought to, how do you balance that? And some of the acquisitions they're looking at are technologies of uh, military concern. I, I think one of the interesting facets of what I do is you'll learn 
so much about what can be done, as we mentioned before, with off-the-shelf products or technology. Mm -hmm. The biggest challenge I have is an investment banker telling me, well, it's just, say, printers. Oh, well, it's a network printer sitting behind a firewall with a software package that could be remotely updated and accessed. It's not just a printer when it's sitting in the Missile Defense Agency. And I think that's, you know, so the it's just a GPS device or it's just a LED light whose epitaxial process may be used in something far more sensitive and serious. So, yeah, I think that's a real, I, I, I'm in complete agreement with DIUX about the, the need to review the early stage investments in key technologies and who's making those investments and not just Chinese, you know, Russian investors, um, and Doug mentioned earlier, I mean, it, the, the technology coming out of Israel and created by the alumni from the 8200 is also attracting a lot of attention from the Chinese. And some of that technology is really enhancing and improving our own weapon system. So I think we need to focus on all of that. Yeah, and I, I'm just getting, I mean, I, I talked to, you know, folks in Silicon Valley, some of the angel investor types. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, they say there, there's actually plenty of money, and sometimes they eschew uh, the money from China because it comes with conditions or it's something that uh, they don't see as part of their long-term growth. But, you know, I think business is business. Business will do and seek uh, funding and money uh, where it can to grow, uh, and it's the role of, uh, of a governing, uh, of the governance to say, look, these are sort of the limitations on uh, where you go for that money for the best interest of the United States. So um, that's why I think this bill is very interesting and will really, uh, whereas the first uh, FINSA sort of hit Wall Street, where all of a sudden they woke up to Cepheus uh, uh, scarily after Dubai Ports World, I think this bill is gonna really uh, make Silicon Valley wake up in terms of, oh my gosh, what is this government that's over there in Washington, D.C.? So it'll be an interesting interplay. I'm conscious of, uh of Ivan's time, so I do want to give people in the room a chance to ask questions while he's still here, but I'll start by asking one about uh, where do you think we are on joint ventures? Because joint ventures have been both one of the best ways to illicitly acquire technology by China and also something that's been sort of a gray area for regulation. Does this bill go far enough? Do we, are we going to fix it? Uh, <laughs> I can see I've touched a nerve. All right, so I told Nova I wasn't going to make any smart-ass comments today. So <laughs> Please, one. You know, about my four kids going to college and how we need to expand authority. Um, look, I think it strikes the right balance, but as I said in my opening remarks, I think it is still a work in progress, and it's going to be bumpy for a while, particularly... Now, there are certain joint ventures that when Dove was at DOD, I'm sure, attracted a significant amount of attention. And you know, I think that the, the outcome on that is really undetermined yet. It's, it's clearly better to not be in the CFIUS process and to have 11 agencies operating under consensus. But to Dove's point earlier, DOD is going to be the elephant in the room on some critical technologies. And to think that, oh, everything's going to be fine, we're just going to go to BIS and I think that's a, that's a chapter that remains to be written. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, 
constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. That's going to be one of the challenges is defining sensitive technology because there's basically only DOD that can do that yeah. at the end of the day. IC has a little involvement, but they're interlinked with uh, DOD. Commerce, state, treasury, they're not going to be able to say what a sensitive technology is. And, and that goes back to my earlier point that there are technologies that DOD is doing below the public radar or even the, you know, the classified radar. I mean, when you're talking black programs, you're talking highly classified activities. And DOD can turn around and say, this is a sensitive technology and I can't tell you why. I learned that the Navy and the submarine corps uses urethane in a way that nobody, that I didn't think possible at the time. So. Yeah, that was an interesting mm. one. Um, it's going to make a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of the joint ventures, I mean, uh, I think there is a real worry of, of uh, you know, that being a way to get around the CFIUS process. I mean, come it on, is. for sure. It's, it's just, you know, oh, CFIUS is going to be an issue. Well, why don't we do a joint venture and get around the process? So. Uh, I definitely think that needs to be observed. Now, we don't want it to obviously impact uh, joint ventures where it's not going to raise a national security issue or with allied uh, uh, countries in, in, in certain aspects. But, you know, definitely, look, it, it needs to be taken a, a serious look at. I mean, I'm not going to cite any one example, but a broad example is, you know, Intel, when it had a flaw in, its, in one of its chips, I mean, it notified one of its investors in China, which is obviously government controlled, before it ever notified the U.S. government. When you have those kind of situations arising, you have to take a serious look on where your national security is going in terms of the pro on the product level that becomes critical technologies. So um, I think all of us kind of liked the bill when it came along, at least in theory, because the, it was closing loopholes. And one of the things that we all noted about China is that uh, FINSA, good bill, but after a few years, it appeared that Chinese investment had found ways to circumvent uh, FINSA restrictions. Uh, do you think this bill closes all the loopholes? <laughs> and I, I don't know. Do you think tax reform closes all loopholes or does it create loopholes? Well, and so three months ago, I would have said that it closed more loopholes than I might say now. Look, I, I think that there's going to be a premium for a while on creative structuring. Hmm. But I think it, you know, particularly when it comes to a Chinese entity, you're taking a risk on creative structuring. So I think you know, it does a pretty good job of pulling in investments that uh, previously have gone unnoticed. Agreed. 
I agree. Uh, look, there will always be some loophole because as soon as the bill is law, there are going to be an awful lot of people, not just in China, but around the world, saying, okay, they're going to hire terrific lawyers like Ivan to look for ways to get around the law. And like he said about tax law or just about any law, but Jim, there's what? always a loophole. The question is, do you minimize the loopholes? And I think it does. But mm -hmm. one thing we advise clients is to embrace the process, as maddening as it can be sometimes for them, because I think you're far better off embracing the process and not trying to hide and being transparent. But yeah. not every lawyer is going to give that kind of good advice. Remember that, too. Yeah. <laughs> but what will be interesting, too, is, um, is that people who just decide that it's better not to file. If they f don't fall under the mandatory declaration clauses, that the process is just too much and too cumbersome and it's better to be caught than go through. I mean, that, yeah, I've every, seen that every situation, deals. Every situation is different. Yeah. And there are judgment calls that have to be made on, you know, what are they investing in and what are the risks um, associated. But final point is the most important thing that you can do in putting together a transaction is due diligence from a national security perspective. And not just the simple, oh, do they have government contracts, is there some itard control technology. You really need to understand what the potential uses and what the potential you know, avenues for vulnerability are. And customer-based government yeah. and commercial. Yeah. So two of the good lines that we got out of that exchange were creative structuring. Did I get that right? I think that's a useful point. But also embrace the process, yeah. uh, which is good advice. And I'd say, too, that this is one of the reasons I like broader discretionary authority, because you may not know it's a problem. but And if the law is written very specifically, or the regs are written very specifically, you may not be able to catch that problem. So. An, a, plug, a plea for discretionary authority there. Um, do we have questions in the audience? Uh, oh, goodness. Uh, Go so I work for DOD uh, involved in the CFIUS process, um, specifically looking at non-notified transactions, mm -hmm. or trying to pinpoint them and, and how we're going to deal with that process uh, post-FIRMA. Uh, one of the things that several of you raised was the venture capital aspect, you know, the protection of intellectual property. It composes a, a, the majority of the value of the companies in the S&P and an even higher proportion of the value of a, a seed, you know, a VC-backed firm where sometimes, you know, the two guys coming out of a dorm room with an idea uh, that's pretty easily pilfered. There's no supply chain, there's no inventory, there's nothing else but an idea generally in some of these cases. So. One of the things that we run across is the fact that when we go to look and see who the investors are, the limited partners in a venture capital structure, uh, they're not required to be disclosed, right? The SEC doesn't require, uh, because it's not a registered investment company, that they disclose in the, uh, the investors behind it. Usually they do, uh, but in 23% of cases, at least that I've been able to find, there's, it's an undisclosed investor. If you go through PitchBook anywhere else, uh, very difficult to locate, and in fact, the SEC isn't even collecting that data. So if I'm going to look for non-notified cases in uh, the VC world, I'm already missing a quarter, well, about a quarter of the, of the investments. Uh, I don't see anything in the current bill that does anything to close that loophole. I guess it's something that would be addressed through the SEC, uh, but do you know of any efforts to do so or why the SEC might not gather that data now? Because it's going to be a major impediment looking at venture capital going forward. Okay. 
I think you know VC investment, particularly limited partners, you know, and the real you know, operative line there is limited partners, because you know if you're investing in a fund where there's a general partner and the general partner makes all the decisions, and you get a, a payout and some financial information, you know, you have to balance what is the risk involved there. Are they really? If they're not involved in day-to-day -day management, if they're not um, overseeing the investment, you know, what's the risk associated with a limited partner? And not all limited partners, not all funds are the same. You can do, have a limited partnership where the dumbest thing I ever saw was somebody take 90% of the capital and, and one limited partner, right? That's not creative structuring, by the way. That's just... <laughs> Bad structure. <laughs> but, you know, with other funds where you're sprinkling limits from, and you've got a, a real, gen, an identifiable general partner, you know, I think that creates less of, less of a risk to you. Yeah, I go back to my 1% solution, you know. Now, they do get exposed. Do, don't a lot of limited partners get exposure to the IP of the underlying firms during the due diligence process? No, and I think that's... No, so I, I think that's one of the interesting, you know, one of the things that we need to do a better job of when we explain transactions is really explain how a transaction is put together, what you see in diligence, what you don't see in diligence. Um, Ivan's getting summoned. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, like, I think there's a misunderstanding of what actually happens in the negotiation of a transaction and what you see. You know, if you're running a process and you've opened a data room, there's going to be a limited amount of information, just enough for you to do evaluation, but not enough for a potential competitor, you know, to take a spin around a data room and say, okay, I know what he's developing and I've got the technology. So, again, I think that it's incumbent upon us in the deal world to give you a better sense of what, they're, what we're sharing and what we're not sharing. I think you got to make sure in this process of evaluating export controls and determining what's a critical technology, what's a new foundational technology or evolving technology, that in that process you start to un understand the category and parameters of issues and technologies that are out there, figure out the companies that are involved, and then start to do your evaluation of who's investing. David Wu. Uh, it, it's an interesting conversation about how much ownership uh, triggers uh, the review in the context of China because there it seems to me that when the Chinese government comes to any entity and asks for a favor, it, it, it's kind of like Don Corleone asking somebody for a favor. It, it's just a bad idea to say no. So isn't the real issue multinationals that have a substantial investment in China and subject to pressure? Uh, or uh, companies, say, located in Panama and uh, careful review of their investment structure? Uh, I, I think there, there's clearly a problem there. I mean, uh, certainly uh, those of us who follow this know that a whole bunch of companies have changed the way they operated precisely because China went to them and China didn't own a, a cent of, of, of the company. But they were doing business in China. And so once you're doing business in China, you're going to be vulnerable. They can do all kinds of stuff to you. They can just change the environmental regulations on you. And guess what? You start spending all kinds of money that you weren't spending a month ago. 
So there's clearly that. And I think that, to some extent, goes to the point that I made earlier, that the, this bill, and it, just, it also goes to your point, this bill covers, closes a lot of loopholes. It's not going to close every loophole. It just won't. And there will be cases, and, and I think at that point, it, it, it behooves the government experts, guys like you, to figure out, okay, this is what they're trying to do, now how do I, how do I stop it? Yeah. And there are ways of stopping it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's a broader issue sort of outside the context and capabilities of CFIUS. So, uh, but it, goes, it does go to sort of uh, one of my earlier points on uh, state-driven control and SOEs and the role of that. That's why I think the principle of limited government and exercising that within CFIUS in free trade agreements, disciplines on SOEs, making that broader policy a condition that our allies agree to to become in the fabric of how nations sort of interact will help uh, China understand and other nations that are sort of state-driven that you need to recede from that sort of policy uh, mechanism. Anyway, well, that is well, the big Let me conflict. just point out one thing. Uh, not all of our allies are going to look at it the way we do. Uh -uh. Um, the Israelis are a great example of that. They don't care if China picks up their technology. It's not used against them. And they don't expect China to sell stuff to, I don't know, Syria. So their incentives are different. And we have to recognize that so that we can put pressure on them where we can. It's, it's not one size fits all. And it's not just China. It may ultimately be China in many cases, but it's not just China. And how we figure out, and this again goes beyond CFIUS, how we figure out to put pressure on our allies is very different from how we figure out putting restrictions on our potential adversaries. And we have to do both. Okay. If I was Israel, I'd be a little nervous about Chinese transfers to Iran. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Uh, Lee Jung Greco, I'm a reporter with the Capital Forum. Um, I wanted to touch on the mitigations uh, that you had mentioned before. I'm wondering, um, is CFIUS uh, more or less interested in these behavioral remedies right now um, than it was during the Obama administration? I'm thinking, um, you know, firewalls, for example, and how that might affect some of these deals like Genworth Oceanwide. So I'm sorry, so that the mitigation is more, I mean, more interested in, they're more interested in what aspect of mitigation? Um, I suppose if, uh, you think they're going to be more or less um, interested in going forward with a deal if there's a firewall or something? Or oh, in, in terms of instead of blocking it, actually yes, doing mitigation exactly. that sort of gets, yes. gets to a yes? Yes. Well, that was always our principle uh, in the Bush administration is that the first precept is open investment, the second was get to a yes, unless you can't. Um, so I think there's been maybe a proclivity in this administration to, if it's too much, then no, and I think that accounts, the reason sort of, I think that sort of flipped in, in, in those terms was just the resources and the capabilities of CFIUS. So that's why I think when Heath Tarbert sort of has been up uh, on the hill talking about CFIUS and, and FIRMA and this bill, a big point he raises is having the funding and the capabilities and the staff to be able to, uh, to do it. So, I mean, when you have a system that's uh, been overburdened, 200 cases is an amazing amount. Uh, for the staff level that they have. Um, 
Of course, you worry about expanding CFIUS too much and creating a monster, so you want to condition it on the on right size, right fit. Uh, investment fluctuates year to year. But I think once they get the right staff, the right funding, uh, then the ability to take mitigation and mitigation monitoring, which is part of this bill, and have, have a system to do it uh, is something that will make them more comfortable with getting to the yes instead of a no and mitigating. So do you think that will be the case even for cases that involve a lot of personal data um, on Americans, for example? Well, I mean, one of the options CFIUS has is to essentially, uh, essentially uh, isolate out the, the foreign uh, ownership. I mean, the, you see it in the DSS uh, mitigation uh, measures where it's a, it's a total sort of uh, structural essence where the foreign ownership gets a check. So if they want that acquisition where all they get is a check, no operational insight or board membership to the U.S. operations, you know, that's something that can be done. That's a mitigation op uh, option. Yeah, I mean, clearly, a lot of the mitigation, what's going to be driving the mitigation is going to be DOD. And uh, as I said, I mean, there are two, two factors that I think are uh, inhibiting or could inhibit the desire to get to yes, which, which was indeed the Bush administration's approach. One is the fact that the sense, the sense of what is a sensitive technology has become even more heightened than ever before. And DSS has changed its whole way of, of looking at the problem, in part because of the insider threat, in part because of the nature of technology, in part because technology has generated so much more outside DOD than inside DOD, that it is, as I said, much more risk averse. So that's one thing that I think will make it, make the mitigation agreements much tougher. The second is the general attitude that now pervades in, in this administration, which is generally negative. I mean, after all said and done, if, you're, if you don't like the idea of trade, you're certainly not going to like the idea of foreign investment. I mean, it's just as simple as that. And so that, in turn, will even more foster even more of a risk-averse approach. I mean, if you're a GS-14 working on this stuff, the last thing you want to do is get in trouble politically. And so that's going to be a, an issue. Is it possible to come up with mitigation arrangements, even under the, under FIRMA? Of course, absolutely. Will it happen? That's going to be case by case. And I think the inclination is going to be no before it is yes. I hope it's not. Because as I say, you, you, know, you don't want to choke off foreign investment. That's crazy. But the inclination will be no until people figure out that no is not always the answer. This is kind of the flip side of uh, creative structuring, which is you can always come up with, almost always come up with a mitigation agreement. Whether it makes business sense to Nova's point is another matter. But you know, if people are willing to be a little flexible, there's almost always a mitigation solution. Yes. We had a question on this side, I think. Claude Barfield, AEI. Uh, <clears throat> I know this is maybe a fantastical kind of uh, factual, but as I listened to the panel today and follow this, I keep coming back in my mind to think that given that it's driven by China, and it's really what consumes the Congress, why, would, why, did we, why don't we just separate out China from the rest of the process? Why not just target China directly? As, a, as opposed to mixing in what are concerns about China 
with general concerns of foreign direct investment in the United States. Oh. Yeah, I just, I just worry that maybe that'll end up in terms of the investment world being a violation of our TRIPS agreement, and so we wouldn't be able to do it in, if we isolated one particular country. So I think in terms of staying within the boundaries of our international obligations, you have to create a, a, a CFIUS reform process that uh, goes across the board and, and gives national treatment uh, across the board. Well, a lot more leeway in terms of trade rules with investment. We could do a lot on our own investment that doesn't violate the WTO or any other rule. Right. And that's, a, I mean, so the you know, net benefit test that Canada has, I mean, that's not necessarily something we could adopt without possibly violating TRIPS agreement. So it's something to think about. Now, the other process that's underway is the 301, where there's the potential to have investment restrictions strictly narrowly on China. Now, I think that'll be interesting to see how that plays in terms of where FIRMA goes. Um, but I think there are broad issues that CFIUS uh, sort of a fix uh, needed to happen. Uh, budget, sort of mitigation, um, sort of uh, dealing with uh, transactions, even if it's, uh, even if China was sort of the impetus for moving uh, some of this. Well, I mean, it, it still is an issue that has to be addressed broadly. Um, so there are some broader things that this bill will do, uh, uh, funding and focus on uh, critical technologies. That's not necessarily just China focus, it's broadly uh, where the U.S. is. So, China, look, China's not the only one, you know. Um, DSS keeps a, a record of, of who's been trying to penetrate our industry. It ain't just one country. There's, there's a hit parade. And, you know, you've got pretty much year after year the same half dozen countries are up there. And another half dozen that are pretty close. So, if, you know, those other 11 would be delighted if the focus was China. That's what they want. I'll give you one, I can name you one that you ought to be able to figure out, and that's Mr. Putin's country. So to limit it to China, I think, would actually be a disaster. And I think at the early stages of the bill, there was some thought to making China-specific provisions, and for the reasons that Nova and Dov said, they moved beyond that. Um, do we have another question a little further up? Hi, Jen Riccardi with the European Union. Uh, if you'll indulge me, I have two questions. Uh, the first is there are some significant differences in the bills passed by banking and financial services last week. How do you see that playing out in, in the bills by how do you see that playing out in conference? And uh, secondly, I'm curious as to the panel's views on how you might expand cooperation with allies beyond the five eyes in France. So, uh, so in terms of uh, the bill struck, I mean, obviously there are, there are definitely differences between the House uh, passed version that came out of committee and then what's in the Senate. Um, structurally right now what's going on in the Senate is FIRMA is part of the NDAA, uh, a National De uh, Defense Authorization Act. Uh, that's a must pass bill, has been for the last 40 plus years and it will pass this year and CFIUS will be part of that. In the House, uh, they have already passed NDAA uh, so you can't attach it to that. What they'd have to do is parachute it on there. So they're going to have to pass uh, their own firma bill independently or on some other vehicle and then parachute it on the NDAA. If that doesn't happen, they're going to go to conference with an NDAA that has firma and one that doesn't. 
and that'll force the issue where the Senate uh, sort of driving uh, provisions will hold. Where it's going to be interesting is sort of the export uh, control provisions, sort of the uh, uh, underlying uh, Royce bill that was put on uh, the House uh, FIRMA bill, and to see where that uh, intercepts with uh, uh, the bill that's um, right now in the Senate. So, and then, do you want to address that and then we can go to the five eyes? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I was I, just going to make fun of export control reform. But go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> we could do that. Now, let me. You, you, you maybe want as a kid. I, all I want to add is you may be wondering why the NDAA <clears throat> is a must pass. <clears throat> and the reason is it's got the pay scales for the military. <clears throat> and so you're not going to shortchange the military's pay. And that's why it goes through every single year. Now, because the Senate has it, Strictly speaking, you can play around with it because it's in scope. And, you know, if the House wants to negotiate a change, it could if the Senate decides to recede. If the Senate doesn't recede, then that's the only thing on the table, which is why, as Nova says, it's probably better for the House to, to come up with something else. And, but still, within the, the construct of the NDAA, um, the, you know, the House could want, ask to insert provisions, and if the Senate recedes, then that's fine. But that bill will pass, because we're going to pay the military. Do you want to talk about expert controls, and I can jump in the five eyes? It's no, let's go to the five yeah. eyes. So the five eyes. So, I mean, we, so the five eyes are the uh, five nations where we share intelligence and uh, classified information fairly regularly on, and, on, and sometimes on very deep levels. So expanding that outside of the Five Eyes, how's that, how do I see that sort of working? Well, I think already we have diplomatic relations with uh, other countries where our ambassadors are there, and we have foreign commercial service there, we have uh, folks from, BA, uh, from the State Department there as well. I think this finally opens up sort of what was held back when uh, I was in the CFIUS process, is the ability to sort of reach out in a formal, uh, uh, in a formal way, a demarche or whatever it's going to be, to say, look, we have these issues, uh, or this investment's happening, and it has implications for both our nations. Um, now, I already know that intel, you know, our intelligence agencies work with other intelligence agencies outside the Five Eyes. So I think this just takes sort of what was held under leash and collar very tightly, with uh, a fear of sort of interaction. This gives it sort of an expanding scope. They're going to have to figure out how to address uh, the issues uh, in a way that doesn't uh, cause calamity or, or problems diplomatically. But I just think uh, this, this helps sort of that, that interaction happen. And how it, hap how it works, I think, is going to be conditioned on each country and on each investment. So. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, look, the Five Eyes is primarily driven by national, pure national security issues, military-related issues. And there's a reason why, you know, there are a couple of European countries that are not part of it. By, by the way, the Five Eyes all speak English as a first language, okay? So that gives you an idea who's not in it. There are a couple of European countries who wanted to be in the Five Eyes forever. And one of the concerns has been, well, um, how do we know you're not going to leak to the bad guys? That was a concern during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. It was a concern, for example, when Gerhard Schroeder was Chancellor of Germany. Do you know he still works for Mr. Putin to this day? So the concerns that were there, I think, were what limited the five eyes to those five English-speaking countries. But as Nova says, 
on particular issues, great example, Iran, we exchange intelligence with all kinds of countries. And so there's no reason why we could not do that in this case. And what the bill does is essentially formalize that to some extent. And that's a good thing. The real question in my mind is, it takes two to dance. And just because we say we're going to work with the Allies on this doesn't necessarily mean that the Allies are always going to work with us when they don't want to, because they're, as I said earlier, their calculation of national interest may not be the same as ours. In fact, it's never congruent. So there will be some gray areas. But by and large, I think it's a good thing to signal to the Allies that we're prepared to be more open with them than perhaps we've been up to now. So, so this will probably be start out at least as a kind of a light uh, information exchange on transactions and perhaps technologies of concern. There are a couple, and you have this problem in NATO too, there are a couple countries that will be very difficult to work with because of their ties to Russia or to China. So I don't know if we could do a EU-wide, NATO-wide approach. Uh, we had another question up in the front. Uh, Jack Caprell with Inside US Trade. Just to get back to China, the White House has said they will uh, unveil recommendations uh, to restrict investment on China by the end of next month as part of a 301 action. And I, you know, given the movement of the FIRMA bill, what options does the White House have to block or mitigate Chinese investment that already wouldn't be captured uh, by FIRMA? So an, another way of thinking about it is how does the White House go beyond uh, restrictions that are laid out in FIRMA? Well, I mean, I <clears throat> it's certainly the, the one sort of key focus of the JV provision that uh, joint ventures where the contribution of IP and associated services where that uh, moved out of uh, the two bills and, and uh, went sort of more in the export side. I mean, that certainly is something that could be done there. Uh, another avenue is investment reciprocity. I don't know if they're going to mm -hmm. necessarily pursue that. That becomes a very difficult road to go down. What is reciprocal and uh, what is being blocked or not blocked and under what conditions. So. Uh, so I think that uh, JV provision, I think reciprocity is another one. Uh, and then I really just, uh, beyond that, I mean, I just don't know what other conditions outside of the existing FIRMA bill that will likely pass under the NDA well, uh, to shift to. Well, well couldn't they also demand uh, transparency on limited partnerships? Now, that's going to be a killer, but yeah. they could ask for it. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, I think the uh, bill has been complicated by the trade tensions in a way that we, we didn't expect when it was first thought of by uh, Senator Cornyn and his staff. So much more complex picture. And, and as I said, remember, bills are legislation. What really matters as, as much, if not more, is the execution, the implementation. That's what the executive branch means. It executes. And here, the, the, the atmosphere surrounding trade is really going to affect how this bill gets implemented. And to Ivan's point, and this might be the point we'll conclude on, and I'll ask my colleagues for concluding remarks, to, for this to work, it has to be part of a larger strategy for investment in R&D, for investment in technology and innovation and education, uh, for thinking about how trade relations need to be restructured in the WTO and with some of our partners. 
So this is a good bill, but it needs to be embedded in a larger strategy to really answer the problem that we face. And that we do face a real problem. I mean, if there's anyone in here who thought, still thinks we won the Cold War, um, I have some bad news for you, but I can tell you later. Any concluding remarks, Nova? Um, so, yeah, so, you know, I agree with you. I think, I think this is a, a good bill, and it's been uh, worth it. The process. It's a very interesting bill that it didn't arise out of an immediate mm -hmm. crisis like Dubai Ports World mm -hmm. had. It's a procedural bill where you had Cornyn and the rest of the intelligence uh, uh, folks on the intelligence committee in the Senate decide we have a very salient issue about the loss of critical technologies and innovation, STEM and CFIUS needs to be reformed due to it. It's had engagement by the administration, both sides of Congress, and so I think there's been a lot of work to get a bill to pass there. It's not a, not a perfect bill. It has its flaws and fallacies, and I think the, there are ways that an administration and its various agencies can fix things if they focus their energy and resources and oversight. But I think it's a good bill. It addresses a very salient and serious issue, and that is what is the dynamic of new, uh, a new world, uh, whereas before uh, the world didn't have internet, uh, it didn't have the complexities it has now. Uh, this goes to try to address those complexities. Uh, of course, a lot of it's driven by the US-China relationship. I think it helps define sort of what is the boundary of what is acceptable and not acceptable. And it also puts the US and China in a position where let's talk about the right rules for engagement and how we should engage each other in the future on certainly the investment issues with our allies. Uh, the European Union uh, expands sort of our engagement and our ability to engage, to talk about what are the mutual national security issues. There's always going to be obvious differences in national interests, but I think sometimes in terms of the broader security of an internal network, of an internal system of technologies and innovation, I think there's going to be coherence. So I look forward to seeing this bill get passed. I think it addresses a lot of issues. It doesn't address all issues. Uh, and hopefully we can avoid trade wars emanating from all sides of our uh, fronts, but I think uh, what the, this administration is trying to do is reset a few relationships that uh, emanated from the past. But I look forward to its passing. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it's not, no bill is a perfect bill. This is a very good bill. Uh, it goes a long way toward dealing with issues that we've been grappling with for a decade. Now remember, China is now not just part of the global supply chain, again, something that we've always had. It is a significant contributor to that supply chain because it, it may call itself a third world country, but in a lot of ways it's not. It's a first world country. And so because of that, that too has changed over the last 15, 20 years. And this bill goes quite a distance in taking account of that. Uh, which I think is important. Um, will there be ways around the bill? Of course there are going to be ways around the bill because that's just the nature of legislation. It's also the nature of how the international system works. Let me give you uh, one thing that Nova gave you some elements of the larger context, as did Ivan before he left. Let me give you another one. It's not in the purview of CFIUS to talk about the number of Chinese students in this country. It's not within the purview of CFIUS to talk about academic exchanges. But we know that, that, that both of those are a major source of transferring uh, uh, in, in intelligence and, and, and IP 
to China. Partly one reason being 20 years ago, if a Chinese student was brilliant and was at MIT, they stayed here. Now they go home. In fact, I'm aware of a brilliant MIT graduate who dropped his US citizenship and retook his Chinese citizenship. That didn't happen 20, 25 years ago. That's not something CFIUS deals with. That's not something this bill deals with. So, you know, unless we have a larger holistic strategy, we'll fix part of the problem. We'll have our finger in one of the dikes, in, in one of the holes in the dike, but there are a lot of other holes still that have to be plugged. On a cheery note, I, you probably all know this, but a company, Sorry about that. A company rolled out a, an AI, one of these, uh, you know, talk to the box and it answers you back. And they had to take it offline for a little bit because when people ask the question, uh, what is the China dream, which is a slogan of the Xi administration. And so they'd say, what is the China dream? And the artificial intelligence would answer back, to move to America. So um, <laughs> I, hope, uh, I hope we remember that one of the strengths we have as a country is that we have allies. Uh, and that treating the allies and working with the allies is crucial. Um, I think one thing we didn't talk about very much is, I don't know what you guys think, but this has been one of the most skillfully managed bills we've seen yes. in a long time. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the, the folks who worked the bill through the process on the Hill, yeah. this is inside baseball, but it's still an impressive feat. Yeah, and finally, um, please join me in thanking our panelists. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to the folks at CSIS for hosting and providing audio of the event. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to share the Lawfare Podcast on social media and to give us a rating and review wherever you found us. Our audio editor is Jen Patya Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Until next time, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.